This is Epicenter Bitcoin, episode 99, with guests Manuel Araoz and Esteban Ordano. This episode of Epicenter Bitcoin is brought to you by Hide.me. Protect yourself against hackers and safeguard your identity online with a first-class VPN. Go to Hide.me slash Epicenter and sign up for your free account today. And by Voltoro.com, the gold to Bitcoin exchange. Trade gold to Bitcoin instantly and securely, starting at just one milligram. Go to Voltoro.com to deposit some Bitcoin and start trading today. Hi, welcome to Epicenter Bitcoin, the show which talks about the technologies, projects, and startups driving decentralization and the global cryptocurrency revolution. My name is Sebastian Couture. And I'm Meher Roy. Today we are joined by two, a pair of talented developers from Argentina. They have worked on many projects. Uh, Some of them are quite well known in the Bitcoin industry. These projects are Proof of Existence, uh, Streamium, uh, Faradam, and Decentraland. We are going to talk about uh, their projects and the prospects of Bitcoin in Argentina. Uh, to introduce our guests, they are Manuel Arauz and uh, Esteban Ordano. We are we are very ha- happy to have you on the show, Manuel and Esteban. Hey, Mer. Thanks for having us. We're glad to be here. Hi. Hi. Thanks a lot for having us here. Okay. So, so perhaps we could start with uh, Bitcoin in Argentina. Because... Uh, uh, there's this impression in the in the Bitcoin media that Argentina is the one country which could adopt Bitcoin and and jumpstart jumpstart Bitcoin and leapfrog ahead of all the other nations in in this technology. What's your opinion on that? Yeah, it, it's actually pretty funny to us to read all those articles claiming Argentina is like the center for Bitcoin and where Bitcoin is growing faster than. It's actually not quite true. Um, as, I, as I always tell everyone, uh, Argentina is kind of uh, a, good, a good spot in, in many ways for Bitcoin because our local currency is really, really bad and there are big capital controls and it's hard to get foreign currencies. But actually, adoption is, is pretty slow and I, I would say Bitcoin is, is growing much faster and adoption is much wider in, in other countries. So I wouldn't say Argentina is the the best place for Bitcoin right now. It's, and it's actually, I, I read many things in news articles that are totally not true about Argentina and Bitcoin. So be careful about that. <laughs> but at the same time, the development scene in Argentina is quite good. There are many companies and cool projects that are springing from Argentina. So that kind of counterbalances the low usage of Bitcoin in general. And uh, how, I mean, I think one thing that has been pretty consistent is the Argentinian government's attempts to sort of stop Bitcoin from proliferating in Argentina, regardless of whether or not it's being used. Uh, How are those startups uh, 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 coping with that? 
Yeah, actually, the, the Argentinian government is not, is not uh, actively working against Bitcoin. I wouldn't say that. There was a, a, the, the only official uh, communication or, or action about Bitcoin was a, a, a posting by the central bank warning the, the population about Bitcoin not being minted by the, by the government, like saying, okay, be careful with this because we don't uh, regulate Bitcoin, we don't regulate its emission, so be careful. And that's about it. As far as I know, I'm not a legal expert. But uh, it's, it's actually a, a more or less friendly environment for Bitcoin companies in Argentina. So we've been duped by all those CoinDesk articles telling us that uh, <laughs> you know, Argentina, there's like so much stuff happening in Argentina that it was like the, the, you know, the, next, the next place where Bitcoin was going to be developed when in fact it's just like anywhere else. Um, well, as it, yeah, as Esteban was saying, I think there are some really good developers working on, on the technology side. And there are some interesting companies uh, down there too. But as far as uh, what we read uh, at least about adoption and how it's the perfect ecosystem and that we will get millions of users, uh, I think that's not going to happen. I mean, it's, it's not going to happen in Argentina first, at least. OK. Well, let's uh, let's talk about you guys' background a little bit. It's, it seems like you've both been working together for so long, uh, and and you've been together on on many different projects. Uh, tell us a bit about how you both got into Bitcoin. So we've been working on Bitcoin since uh, since like two or three years ago. Uh, Manuel started on on this. We, we actually have a chat conversation back in that time, trying to manage, uh, organize a Bitcoin development uh, meetup. Um, then Manuel went out to create proof of existence. Uh, I was doing, I was working at Google at some point around that there. And we, when Manuel joined BitPay, uh, I joined uh, a few months later. And that's when we started working uh, together in this space. We already met each other from college. We're actually pretty good friends from many years ago from college. Uh, I, as Esteban as said, we, we were at first interested in Bitcoin, like from, from the side. We were not working with it, but we chat about it. Uh, then I, I did proof of existence as a small experiment. It turned out to be pretty well received in the community. So after that, I was uh, unemployed, so I started doing freelance work for Bitcoin companies mainly, or trying to work with Bitcoin, given uh, that I had a small experience with that, and it was really interesting in the technical side. And after working for a year and a half in, in, as a, uh, with consulting in Bitcoin, I met Tony from BitPay, and uh, I joined there. And a few months later, uh, I convinced Esteban and a couple of other friends to join, and we've been working there on all the all these projects uh, you mentioned, like Streamium, Paradigm, Decentraland. We also uh, collaborated on Bitcore, building Bitcore, which is the open source JavaScript library for Bitcoin applications, uh, as part of the open source uh, initiative by BitPay. So, um, so, so, so maybe with that we could go into discussing your uh, your new project, Streamium. So for the for our listeners that have never tried Streamium or heard of it, could you could you describe what it does and who it is meant for? Yeah, sure. So Streamium 
is a live streaming application that uses Bitcoin payment channels as a monetization uh, option. So it started off as a, a, as a hackathon project between uh, uh, seven friends. It's actually, the team is quite big. Uh, we, we, it, it was a group that we used to get together uh, in, during the weekends for, we call them Bitcoin dinners. We got together and talked about latest news uh, about Bitcoin, what we saw about the future. And after a while, we got bored about just talking because most of us are developers or uh, work with technology. So uh, we wanted to actually do something. One of the guys suggested doing a, a hackathon. So we got together on a weekend and started. It, it was actually Esteban's idea to build Streamium. Uh, we, we were talking a lot about payment channels and we wanted to build a, an application that was interesting uh, in, in the sense that it showed the real value of payment channels as a protocol. Uh, so we, we built it over uh, a couple of weekends and we launched it several months later because it was a super slow development in our free time. But that's, that's a story. So, so what it basically does is uh, uh, it allows a user to, to record something and stream it live uh, and stream it live and in exchange receive payments through through bitcoin uh, bitcoin micro uh, payment channels so uh, maybe we could discuss part of the architecture of uh, of of streamium uh, and there are two important sections to it one is how does the money flow and the second is how does the data flow and could you explain how both of these things happen when i create my own streamium stream yes of course. Um, so Streamium uses WebRTC, uh, which is a decentralized peer-to-peer -peer protocol, so can, browsers can talk to each other. We are currently relying on a, a rendezvous server so that uh, browsers can create the connections uh, between each other. And with that WebRTC connection, you, you can send both the data and the video. Uh, we're using the capability of sending data so they can negotiate a Bitcoin payment channel. And this is an uh, actually, I think it's the first implementation of a payment channel for some kind of like real world usage. Um, uh, once that payment channel is established, the video streaming uh, starts. Uh, and it's a broadcasting uh, mechanism. So uh, if I'm broadcasting my video, uh, everybody that is receiving the video will have to be paying me through a payment channel. So from a, from a technical standpoint, uh, it's, a, well, it's not fully, fully decentralized. We have, I, I will say the, the gotchas in a second, but uh, both the video it goes through a peer-to-peer -peer protocol and the, and the payments, because payments grow through Bitcoin payment channels, which we'll know is a decentralized payment system and the video goes through WebRTC which is a peer-to-peer -peer protocol for the browser and the the two the two uh, points of centralization are what Esteban mentioned the the rendezvous server where peers can uh, get uh, the other peers information for for discovery and of course the the static uh, HTML server that uh, serves the files for the client to run the, the application. Okay, so could you describe the, the payment channels and how they work in more detail? 
So a payment channel is kind of like uh, opening a tap in a bar. Uh, you set a certain amount of money that it's the maximum that you want to spend in that payment channel. And you lock those funds in a two of two address. Um, so this two of two is controlled by both parties in the payment channel. So any transaction that gets signed uh, will have to have the approval of both parties. And there's a time lock mechanism in, uh, in case I funded this payment channel, but the other party uh, that is going to be receiving the funds uh, will not uh, be willing to uh, sign a transaction giving back all the funds. So after a day, you can recover all your bitcoins. Is that clear enough? Or? Yeah, but so in, so if I understand those th in this case, what you're doing is you're doing a, a two of two trans uh, multi-signature transaction. The um, the person that's doing the streaming will have incentive to to sign that but so for the for the viewer so the viewer is the, him is to the sign? one the viewer is the one that will fund the channel uh, we we usually call them technically the consumer and the provider of the service so the consumer okay. funds the channel and asks the provider for a sign a transaction that becomes valid the next day, so he can have the fund, funds back if the protocol gets interrupted. Interrupted. Okay, so once the stream is is initiated, the consumer has already signed his part of the transaction and is waiting for the provider to sign his part of the transaction. Yes, he actually does this. Uh, he signs a transaction and he waits for the provider to sign a transaction, a second transaction, spending that first two of two paying to, to, uh, to a two of two address transaction. It's kind of like complicated. I will need a blackboard to explain it. Sorry. Well, that's okay, because this is a podcast, so people don't necessarily see. If they're not watching the video, they're not going to see it anyway. But um, And so the, the, the payment channel is opened, and then uh, so there's a payment for every chunk of let's say 30 seconds of video, how does that work? How do you, how does the money keep flowing? All right, so as a, sending an update of the payment channel, which means uh, spending a little bit more money from those locked funds. Um, when, when I send one of these small micropayments to the provider of the service, he will send me uh, back the video. Right now in streaming, what we are using is uh, we interrupt the video if the payment flow stops coming. And if the video stops coming, uh, we interrupt the payment flow. So it's a trustless solution for payments. So, so basically, um, could we say it like this? Suppose it's me, uh, me, the creator of the video, and Esteban is the consumer. I'm the producer, and Esteban is the consumer. Then what is happening is uh, when I start my stream, um, nothing happens. Now, when you want to, when you want to, when you want to see my stream, then you will send your bitcoins into a multi-signature address that is controlled by you and me jointly right yes and so now so 
so basically when the service started you agreed to watch the service for a maximum of one hour and then let's say the price of that one hour is fifty dollars an hour so you locked fifty dollars worth of bitcoin into a into a into an address which is jointly controlled by you and me now now what now what starts to happen is there has to be data that needs to go from my webcam because i am the producer to your uh, your terminal so with each item of data let's say like the, there's a there's a there's a big packet that that has 30 30 seconds of video so corresponding to the transfer of that item that packet of data from my computer to yours you need to send me a a transaction which allows me to claim part of the funds that were locked into the multi signature account right yeah that's uh, that's correct and okay. uh, we it doesn't have to be 30 seconds uh, it can be one second it could be one minute uh, and uh, you may want to be sure that you have a certain margin of error so you don't stop the video because you didn't receive the payment so it's actually more like a flow of video from one in one connect, in one way and a flow of payments in the other way okay so the question i i start to have here is let's say let's say i am i am creating a stream and uh, i have already uh, created this multi signature account with esteban because esteban is watching my stream now manuel joins manuel wants to see my stream so i create another account with manuel and then sebastian wants to join there's a third one created is it the case that i am broadcasting my video data to all three of you through webrtc wouldn't that need a lot of bandwidth on my side yes uh, you are constrained by the amount of bandwidth that your upstream connection has uh, so if you want to have many users let's say i guess that more than 10 will start to really uh, stress the connection um you may want to uh, look into another a different solution some kind of like first uh, cast to a server that will then broadcast the video to a lot of users or maybe use a more decentralized solution like bittorrent for the distribution of the video right Let's take a short break to talk about our brand new sponsors hide.me. Uh personally been using them for about a year so I'm really excited to have them on. You know, you know we sometimes take our 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 privacy and security online for granted. I know that I did. I often tell people if you use public Wi-Fi, uh you might as well assume that your data has been compromised in some way. There's so many ways people can attack you nowadays. I mean, if you're using a website that isn't SSL, people can on the same network as you can pretty much see anything that you're doing on that website. And even SSL websites Uh, like your bank, social media, or Bitcoin wallets, for example, can be vulnerable to certain types of attacks. Uh, so, you know, as a Bitcoin user in your office or in a co-working space, or like if you're in a public Wi-Fi, someone could potentially target you just based specifically on the websites that you visit. Uh, now, you want to protect yourself against that, and to do that, you need Hide.me. Hide.me gives you an encrypted connection between your device and their network of servers, so attackers and even your ISP have no idea what you're doing. This all happens over super fast gigabit Ethernet, so there's no lags, and you have an encrypted tunnel there uh, which protects you. And in addition to that, Hide.me keeps no logs of any of your activity. 
And the great thing about Hi.me is that they have a free plan. The free plan gives you up to two gigabytes of data per month at unthrottled bandwidth. And that's just enough so you can protect yourself whenever you use a cafe, when you're traveling, you're on an airplane, in an airport, uh, or use any public Wi-Fi spot. And you can sign up and get that free account when you go to hi.me slash epicenter. The great thing too is that if you ever decide later to get a premium account, then signing up with that URL is gonna get you 35% off. The premium account includes unlimited bandwidth, access to all their servers worldwide, and they've got lots of them. And it also lets you connect up to five devices simultaneously. You can use it on your mobile phone and with all your devices. And of course, you can pay with Bitcoin. Now we'd like to welcome Hi.me as a new sponsor. We're excited about what they're doing. And of course, we would like to thank them for their support of Epicenter Bitcoin. So um, I guess this is sort of a structural problem with WebRTC is that it's, it's a peer-to-peer -peer only um, protocol. Now, you mentioned BitTorrent. That's interesting because we had thought of, uh, about you know, different ways that you could um, scale WebRTC. And I guess this would not only apply to what you're doing and sort of the you know, Bitcoin micropayments space, but also could be potentially used for you know, large-scale WebRTC broadcasts um, by just about anyone. Uh, is by using BitTorrent or perhaps IPFS or some other distributed file sharing protocol to stream video. Has that, does that already exist? Has that been done before? Or is this something that you're looking into for Streamium? Well, actually, one of the other Streamium developers, his name is Shemel, he did a small experiment about that. Uh, we, we had the same idea, and he, he wanted to test it out. And it actually worked pretty well, but, well, not, not pretty well. It, it could work. But it was hard to make it uh, perform well, uh, talking about video, live video quality. So there, there are some complications where you're dealing with uh, a live stream of video. And we were having, like, because uh, torrents are predetermined size files, because you need to check the file integrity. And, and it has, it, it's, not, it's not designed to, to stream files. So, you have some problems when you are connecting several chunks of, of video. And it's also, um, as, as Esteban pointed out, uh, in, in live streaming, you can drop some frames and it's fine. But the BitTorrent protocol uh, doesn't support that kind of stuff. You need to download the whole file. So we, we had some pretty successful experiments with that. But uh, there's still a lot of work to be done to optimize the protocol and, and allow other ways to distribute the, the video without relying on, on the provider to, to share the same video to everyone. And is, I mean, is this something that has been addressed? Like, I mean, the, 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 the problem of streaming live video to a large audience uh, w without having to rely on some centralized uh, third party like Ustream or something like that. Is this something that has been addressed or perhaps we have actual solutions for uh, sort of outside of what you guys are doing? Uh, not that I'm aware of, but it will be interesting to see if there's a distributed peer-to-peer -peer version of the real-time protocol, which is what WebRTC and 
uh, Skype or all those solutions use. It's uh, either RTP or uh, X H two sixty three or three sixty three or something. I don't remember the name. It it would be a really cool experiment to build something on that. Well, I mean, if you guys successfully do this with BitTorrent, I, you know, you essentially be the first to to achieve that, right? Yeah, we we actually don't know if there's another project doing something similar. Uh, we should look it out, but. Uh, as I told you, it was is what it it worked like as a proof of concept, but it it still needs a lot of work to actually work uh, uh, correctly. Uh, you, we would need to polish the protocol in many ways, and I don't think the best solution is to use BitTorrent based on the the things I mentioned earlier. But maybe building a, a specific protocol for this could work. Another question is, doesn't the doesn't the fact that Bitcoin need confirmations uh, to confirm a Bitcoin transaction, one needs one hour, and uh, zero confirmation transactions are um, are not secure? Doesn't it impede impede streaming in any way? Like, for example, if I if me and Esteban want to launch this stream, then Esteban's money needs to be locked in this two of two multi-signature account, and the process of that locking to be secure needs one hour. So how how does it work out? What if I try to double spend you? So <laughs> right now, Streamium uh, uses zero confirmations by BlockCypher, and we are using the um, confidence in transaction uh, parameter from them. Because uh, the thread model is quite, uh, quite uh, low on restrictions. Um, if like the worst thing that could happen for you is that I can watch a few seconds of video from you uh, because the streaming right now, when that it detects a double spend, uh, it will cut the channel off. Uh, so you you could be uh, stolen of a few seconds of content from me, but that's kind of like the worst that could happen. Uh, okay. Streaming on your side will take care of that, and if the transaction gets confirmed then it will stop checking for double spends or stuff like that. Okay, so so basically what you're saying is that um, when when I'm trying to create this stream, uh, there is a risk of double spends, but the value at risk is very low. So right. for example, if I'm if I'm taking if if I'm charging ten dollars an hour for a stream and uh, you do a double spend, maybe it's the case that you saw $2.5 worth of video and uh, and I didn't get paid for it. Yeah, if exactly. We managed to successfully double double spend. And probably even less because uh, right now BlockCypher, uh, the moment it detects in any uh, any transaction anywhere, uh, it will uh, report that and streaming on your side will say, no, hey, this guy is trying to make a double spend, so let's stop the video right now. Today's magic word is stream, S-T-R-E-A-M. Head over to letstalkbitcoin.com to sign in, enter the magic word, and claim your part of the listener reward. So, w- what is the monetization model for a for a service such as well, for a service such as Streamium? Are you looking to monetize it in any way? Yeah, so Streamium is, a, is an open source and free project. 
anyone can use it for free. There's no charge. I mean, the, the streamer charges the, their audience, but uh, to use the, the product is completely free. There's no fees. Uh, we're not planning. We're not planning to to monetize the monetize it in any way. Uh, we had some ideas of doing a, like a, a separate service that allows uh, streamers to increase their their potential audience based on the scalability problems we already discussed. Given that it's completely peer to peer and the the limit uh, is based on the uh, on, on the streamer's bandwidth. Um, we were thinking about building a service that uh, broadcasters could connect to for a fee, uh, distribute, it, dis it could distribute the, the video for them. So still using WebRTC, but with an intermediary for video distribution. Uh, but we, we haven't uh, completed that. I, I mean, we haven't moved forward with that. It's an idea. It's, it's there in case we want to pursue monetization of streaming. So then, the, the the content producers get a hundred percent of the money that uh, that they charge for the video. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's really cool. So I mean, this is another, so we had another question regarding piracy. Um, what prevents someone from rebroadcasting a stream that they're paying for on for free or for for cheaper than what they're paying for it? Basically yeah, no, yeah, nothing. No, I nothing. think <laughs> uh, information wants to be free. Uh, the moment that you gave out information, uh, the people that received it is free to rebroadcast it. I think that uh, what waits in favor of the content producer is that probably the quality of the rebroadcast will be lesser because of uh, the video streaming. It kind of like loses some quality. It's important to to note that. Uh, we're not trying to solve uh, piracy with uh, with streaming. It's just a way to monetize live content you create uh, for free. But of course, once uh, the the viewer gets the video on their machines, they can rebroadcast it in any way they they want. They already have like the like, like any content essentially. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, well then, I mean, my my uh, my next question is uh, on on use cases. So, um, you know, there's so many ways to do streaming video these days. Uh, we're using Google Hangouts right now. Um, of course, that doesn't provide monetization, but you know, some other solutions do. I believe YouTube is now starting to do uh, uh, monetization in their streams and those other services that allow that. Uh, what differentiates a streamium user from uh, YouTube paid live streams? I don't know what they call it, but uh, you know, from centralized services. What types of people do you see using streamium as opposed to other types of streaming services? Uh, it's kind of funny, but uh, we we have like fifty percent of the, our users are basically porn, so it's. Uh, girls, cam girls doing shows online for their clients, I guess. Um, the, the other use, big use cases are uh, education and live gaming. So it's people doing online classes or showing their, their screens while they play video games. But the biggest one by far is porn. Uh, we think that it's probably based on the advantages 
uh, you have with Bitcoin, where you you don't have the the so-called. Uh, we learned about this after launching Streamium. It's it's something we don't know about, but uh, in in uh, live uh, porn, like live camera porn, there's the problem of uh, what they call the wife chargeback, where uh, it's it, they have a really high rate of chargeback, and it's not based on the, the actual user, but when the wife sees, oh, what is this? And he says, no, I don't know. I, I didn't use that. OK, let's do a chargeback. Uh, and that's a big problem, apparently. And this sort of solves that. Uh, but it also allows the, the user to sort of end the stream at any point in time, so you don't have to prepay for something you want to watch. And it's sort of a win-win uh, in both sides. That's our, our analysis of why this is uh, interesting for the porn use case. But So there's the privacy and anonymity part on the client side. And I suppose on the provider side is more money in the girl's pockets and yeah. not having to subject to you know the, the rules and restrictions of some campsite. Um, yeah. Essentially, the, the people using it are completely independent. Yeah, and apparently the the fees those sites charge for the the girls or the what well, the video producers uh, is really really high. Like, I, I don't remember exactly the numbers, but I heard something like forty or fifty percent. So it's mad. So on the other types of people using it, well, you mentioned education and online gaming. Are you talking about uh, sort of Twitch style uh, people streaming their online gaming? Exactly. So uh, in education, we have several. Uh, language classes like English or Spanish teachers and uh, some a, a small amount of users doing consulting um, and on the gaming side it's mainly just people playing uh, video games and streaming their their screens while they play and that's that's a feature we added some weeks after we launched streamium the possibility to broadcast your own screen because uh, some people some users requested that, so we added. So, uh, like, I mean, obviously, like with with everything Bitcoin, all the technologies are in this super early phase, and uh, somehow uh, it also resembles the the Internet of old, in which uh, pornography was the first killer application. So maybe it's it's fitting that even for Bitcoin, this should be one of the one of the first. I I had this imagination that uh, maybe one day. Uh, Drones could stream. Like I have this, I have this like four hundred dollar Parrot Bipop drone that uh, you can fly around. And even though it's moving in the air, the video quality is extremely still. Like it, 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 it seems like it's it's a tripod flying in the air. And I was, I had this imagination that perhaps in the future I'll go to a concert from Pantera or some band or Bono, and there'll be drones flying around, and I can actually. Uh, check out, and, and they'll they'll be using something like Streamium to send out their video, and I can actually take any of this stream and see what the drone is seeing, basically. So, uh, so I mean, like I, I had the feeling that it's uh, it's an idea that has a lot of uh, lot of users in the future, and maybe it it needs just Bitcoin to catch on in uh, in order to be be really use be be really widespread. It was interesting also to 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 see like uh, you you mentioned that you have this service that just does micropayments. Could you could you tell us what that is? Yes, 
Um, based on uh, what we talked with our early users, mainly the, on the education side, most were requesting some features we were not ready to develop, like, OK, we need a digital whiteboard where we can sort of write stuff and the student can watch that. Or we need a dual video communication so that the, the viewer can also send their, their webcam content. And we, we said, OK, do we want to really build a, an education product? Uh, but because what they, we, based on what we talked with them, what they really valued was the, the fact that they could charge by the second they were doing the class. Because sometimes they have problems charging after the class ends. So you, you do a two-hour class, and then the student disappears, and they never pay. And so it's hard to get the money. The, the money is a, a problem in, in online teaching. So when do you charge? Before the class, after the class? So this solved this. And we thought that maybe extracting the, the payment system from Streamium and doing a, a super simple app where you can use payment channels inside of any other application could be interesting. So we did that. We built Faradam. It's a, just a, a good way to describe it is Streamium without the video. So we, you, have a, you create a... a a session, it's like a timer, where you create a, a timer, you set your hourly rate or your rate per minute, and then you can connect a client and charge them uh, by the second. Uh, and you can use it uh, combined with any other application like Skype or whatever. It could actually be ch a chat session or, or whatever you want, and charge, charge for your time to your clients. So, which which gets the higher number of users? Is it Streamium or is it um, is it Faradam? So, as I understand it, it's Streamium is Faradam plus uh, plus the plus the software to do live video streaming. So, which one is proving more popular? Yeah, actually, Faradam was a pretty unsuccessful experiment. We had really few users. Uh, it was basically the, the users that requested that functionality that used it a couple of times, but then we didn't see any actual growth, even though we tried to make it grow in some in some ways. Uh, so it's definitely Streamium is way more popular, and we have more users there. I mean, it it, it seems kind of obvious since you know Streamium is sort of a more of a final product, where Faradam, I mean, you sort of have to make it. Uh, you you have to. You have to come up with the the means to provide the service uh, which you're charging for. So, um, and of course, you have all that porn on Streamium, and that, we all know that brings in a bunch of people, right? <laughs> I wanted to talk about uh, alternative funding models. I mean, micropayments have sort of been touted by the Bitcoin community as you know, one of the killer apps, and Bitcoin has often been described uh, in in some sense, as a way to solve the content monetization problem uh, that we have. I mean, I mean we've definitely, uh, it's, it's been something that we've thought a lot about. You know, how do we monetize our content? I think a lot of content producers also ask themselves that question. Uh, there's different ways to monetize your content. You can sell advertising as we do. Uh, you can have a paywall. You can charge by the article, um, which is mostly like pay-per-view. And for the most part, advertising has won uh, pretty much uh, for every type of content that you don't literally pay for with money. Uh, 
Um, now, with regards to Bitcoin and, and, and microtransactions and how you would pay for content, I mean, it seems promising. It seems interesting as, an, as a thought experiment that, you know, you would go on some website and you would come up to an article and it would tell you, okay, you want to pay for this? And you just say yes, or a YouTube video, uh, or perhaps a stream. But in reality, I'm not sure that people are ready to do that. For one, um, you need to have people using Bitcoin in this particular example. And two, people are so used to, you know, not paying for content directly that in order for that, uh, uh, for that behavior to change, you would need a whole lot of sort of pressure, I guess, um, from the content industry. I'd like to know what your thoughts are on this. Where do you see micropayments going in the future? I have some thoughts, but I think I'm talking too much. I want to know if Esteban has some comments there first. <laughs> well, uh, one of the biggest issues that we've seen with uh, user-facing micropayments is the, the mental cost of those transactions. Uh, you don't want to be browsing around and at the end of the day, knowing that you lost $10, $20 in some random website. But at the same time, you don't want to be uh, agreeing to be paying one cent per each article that you're reading. So it's kind of like an unsolved problem from a usability point of view. But at the same time, it's probably going to be most used in machine-to-machine, -machine, uh, this aspect of micropayments. Although Right now, the best uh, solution that we've seen for content monetization is this one of uh, recording every website that you've been to and at the end of the day, uh, pay out uh, accordingly to each, each one uh, website that you've seen based on how much time you spend on it or how much you like it. it or how many, which ones you like the, the most. Uh, as a donation, essentially. Yeah, something like that. With Right now, I think it's the best uh, kind of like solution. I don't know what, Manuel, uh, that's one of the things that we were discussing with Manuel. Yeah, I agree. It's a, it's a really hard problem. Like, there's many, many, many companies and many smart people working on this because we, we all see, we all have the intuition that there's some way of using Bitcoin micropayments to uh, sort of change the way content is, is monetized on the web or in general in online. But it's a really hard problem. We, we need to work on the really small details of the user experience. Uh, there's a really great article by Nick Savo talking about the, the mental transaction costs of micropayments and how smart contracts can help with that. I recommend reading that if you're interested in the topic, but it's it's actually a, a, it will be a really uh, long uh, work of trying to figure out what the user interface is. In the case of uh, human level uh, micropayments for content, I agree with Esteban that we'll probably see uh, other applications where there there are no humans involved, uh, and their micropayments make uh, much more sense because essentially. What micropayments and smart contracts solve is the problem of trust between the parties. 
uh, they reduce the, the trust between the two parties for a, an economic interaction. And in the case of computers, I mean, in the case of humans, the trust is uh, usually there. Uh, so it's, it's really in the details where you can improve the experience with micropayments. Uh, but when you have two machines interacting, uh, it's, it's really machines cannot trust other machines because they can break or they have, I don't know, the concept of, of trust is really human. And uh, it makes a lot of sense to try and build some applications of micropayments with machine-to-machine uh, -machine interaction. Uh, there's one interesting example of an attempt to try to solve this the content monetization problem or to at least reduce the number of ads that we see is perhaps you've seen a Google contributor. So basically what Google has done is said to their users, uh, I mean, to everyone who uses the internet and sees uh, Google uh, advertising. So whenever you go on a website, for instance, and you see an ad, there's a pretty good chance that that ad was sold through Google and the content producer is making money when you see that ad and when you click it. And what Google has done is they said, okay, well, we're going to put up this platform called Google Contributor. And as a user of the internet, you can pay upfront, say two, five, ten, twenty dollars $20 per month to not see ads. And rather than uh, paying the content producers through the display of ads, you're going to pay the content producer directly through, uh, through Google Contributor. And we, you know, we will give them the money basically as though you were seeing an ad instead you'll just see a white box or I mean you can put custom HTML in there or whatever. Um, so I thought that was really an interesting experiment, but you know, Google is in a particularly good position to do that because they own the advertising space. That's part of, of the, the problem with these kinds of solutions too. It's hard uh, to solve the distribution uh, of, of a micropayment solution uh, for content monetization because uh, when you don't have any sites that support this, uh, you have no reason for users to uh, have the, the client side of the application. And if you have no users that can pay for that can pay for these micro interactions, uh, the sites don't have any reason to implement the system too. So it's also a, a business or sort of growth hacking uh, problem where someone needs to figure out a way to to make the uh, this grow uh, in some way to solve the chicken and egg problem, so to speak. <laughs> it's time for a word from our sponsors, Voltoro.com, the gold to Bitcoin exchange. Look, if you've ever traded gold with fiat, you know how much of a hassle that can be. Of course, trading gold with Bitcoin makes it super easy and super fast to uh, send money into the exchange. And uh, with Voltoro, you can start trading gold as little as one milligram and their trading fees start at 0.2%. And with the leading, the world-leading security and transparency that Voltoro are providing, you can rest assured that your Bitcoins are safe. And by the way, because you're trading commodities, you don't need to provide any KYC documentations for deposits less than $5,000 worth of Bitcoins per day, which means that there's barely any, there are no barriers to entry. You can get started today. You might be asking yourself, what do those guys do all day? Do they lie in their bathtub swimming gold? Well, you might think that, but actually... They may be, may be doing that part of the time, but the other part of the time, they keep doing the same thing over and over again, and that's improving Voltoro. And they've done it again. So this time they've added instant confirmations. They've partnered with Blockcipher, and you can now 
deposit your bitcoins and start trading straight away. So keep improving your service. Uh, so go to Voltoro.com and start trading gold today. We would like to thank Voltoro for their support of Epicenter Bitcoin. So uh, you've mentioned that uh, the mental cost of transactions is uh, a barrier to micropayments. And on this front, I think Streamium has uh, innovated quite a bit. Like um, um, all the user sees is how much somebody charges per hour and then the system works and you just decide whether you want to give something $50 an hour and then you watch the stream and you close out and everything else is handled on its own. The user doesn't really see the meter running, for example. Uh, have you, what kind of user feedback have you received regarding, uh, regarding this aspect? Are, are users happy with this kind of system or do you think uh, something else is needed, something even better is needed? Well, right now the highest barrier uh, for using payment channels is uh, the knowledge of that you are sending this transaction with a, for the maximum amount of time that you will be watching. And that kind of like confuses the users because, well, I have, I've already tried to explain the payment channel, but it's a complicated thing to do. With the streaming, uh, we're having that uh, maximum amount of money to be locked in uh, thing, which is uh, the current biggest problem for payment channels for users. Uh, because the fact that the users need to lock funds and there are currently no wallets supporting payment channels uh, natively, we need to ask them to make a sort of deposit, then we create the payment channel and even though it's trustless, we require the user to send the, the actual total amount, so it feels like, okay, am I prepaying this or not? Uh, so a, a big barrier to that is um, actual wallet adoption of the payment channels protocol. That would decrease the, the, the mental costs a lot, I think. But with regards to the metered payment, we actually uh, asked this question because we were afraid of the same thing about users being, I don't know, nervous about the costs, not knowing how much they're actually paying. But from what we interviewed, uh, all of them were said that it, it was okay. Like they, they understood it and they were not nervous. They were not checking the time to see if, if they were wasting a lot of money or not. It was, I think we did a pretty good job, but we're still, we're still really far from an optimal solution, I think. Yeah, I, I, I used your service and in the beginning, I... I saw this multi-signature address and the first thing I, I thought was uh, it's a centralized service that I'm sending money to you and you will partition the money between me and the and the stream creator. But then that turned out to be turned out to be wrong. It's actually a wallet in a browser that we had to code so we can have the payment channel. So so basically when uh, when I put in money, I'm actually um, creating a new set of private keys and uh, with those new private keys I'm, uh, I'm I'm putting money into this multi-signature signature address so it's my own browser that is my own wallet in the background without me even realizing it right yeah that's right exactly so uh, so maybe we could uh, we could talk about one of your other projects that uh, that is that is quite interesting it's uh, it's called uh, decentraland and it's a project that I that I saw that uh, merges uh, virtual reality and uh, blockchain technology. 
Now I've been surfing around the virtual reality world for uh, for the past half a year, and you see uh, you see many people talk about the intersection of the blockchain and the virtual reality. There's there's statements like Bitcoin will be the currency of the metaverse. The metaverse is the virtual reality universe. Or or you see statements like um, that uh, the virtual reality needs to be decentralized. So could you explain what is what is the connection between these two technologies and why you chose to devote some of your time to it? Uh, it's actually a super experimental project we did for fun. Uh, so don't expect uh, a lot of sense to come out of this, but uh, we were also really, we really excited personally about virtual reality and of course blockchain technology because we work there in the, in the industry. And we wanted to do a small experiment where we could combine those two cool ideas. Uh, I don't know how much sense that makes, but we wanted to build a blockchain-based virtual reality world. The idea is to, to use the blockchain as the support for the structure of the world. So in Bitcoin, you have the blockchain as a data structure that allows you to synchronize the state of the decentralized network uh, so that all the nodes can agree and reach a consensus on what the, uh, to simplify it, the balance of every Bitcoin address is. Uh, so the same idea could be applied to uh, a network where the nodes uh, synchronize the state of a virtual world. So uh, transactions in this, uh, in this blockchain would be uh, state modifications of the world. So, uh, and in the case of the central land, we did a really simple technical prototype where you have uh, the model of the virtual world is just a pixel grid. So uh, a two-dimensional color grid with, where each pixel can have different colors. And transactions represent a color change in the two-dimensional grid. So one transaction in the central land is uh, uh, a message that changes the color of one pixel at coordinate at, at a, an XY coordinate. And mining uh, is is used as in Bitcoin to to validate and provide security to to the to the transactions. And uh, when you generate a new block, the Coinbase transaction in the central line allows you to add a new pixel to the grid. So initially you have a a one by one grid, so only one pixel. And when you mine the next block, you can add a new pixel to the grid uh, in an adjacent position. So the idea is that the the grid of pixels will, will grow over time when users are mining new blocks. And then the owners of each pixel can change the color. So it's actually a really simple model of a virtual world. It's sort of a proof of concept that has no actual use, but it was a fun experiment to do. So it was like, I could see that it's a prototype, but uh, it could, to my eye, it also, um, it was sort of the answer to one of the problems that 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 virtual reality has. Um, well, not not an exact answer, but a, but a really interesting one. So so with virtual reality, I think the the problem is um, if I actually start to live my life in virtual reality, then I I want to have my own house or my own property in virtual reality, and I want to own own something in virtual reality, like like the way people used to own stuff in in Second Life. But the problem is if if uh, all of the information to create this virtual space is with a company like Google, and I call something my house in virtual reality, but actually all the information to build it is 
owned by Google that can go down any, any day, that can prevent me from own, accessing my own house in virtual reality. So uh, a centralized model is like I, I, I want to own something, but I really can't own anything in a, in a centralized model of, uh, of data processing. So, uh, so they, it seemed to be that with Decentraland, I could have uh, my ownership over something and the, the data structure that is giving me ownership is not a centralized entity and that makes it really interesting. Would you, would you, would you agree with that? Yeah, it, it's exactly what we try to do with Decentraland. This first version, you could see those pixels as parcels of the world and you own those parcels and you get to decide which color uh, you can paint those pixels. But in a further version, that would be your land, your house, instead of a pixel and a color. Also, the motivation for that, like why, why would you want it to be decentralized and actually own it? Uh, we, even, even today, where we have virtual worlds that are super centralized, say, I don't know, uh, games like World of Warcraft, uh, players spend a lot of time and invest a lot of, of money and time into those virtual worlds. Uh, we think that when you actually own the stuff and you don't have the risk of a company changing the rules of the world or taking ownership of what you built, uh, the, the time and the things we will see created in those virtual worlds uh, will increase a lot. Like the investment of users into virtual worlds will grow a lot because they will actually know that there is no risk to lose that uh, to the, the whims of a company. Before we wrap up here, uh, I'd like to briefly uh, talk about proof of existence. So, uh, Manuel, you sort of pioneered this, um, the idea of proof of existence. And it's funny because I was reading, a, a, just randomly reading this white paper this week, and it mentioned you in the abstract as the, as the person that pioneered the, the, the sort of idea of the proof of existence in the blockchain. So, you know, proof of existence essentially is... Um, time stamping a piece of data with a hash that you uh, then put into a transaction and uh, in the in the op return and that hash is is sort of notarized into the blockchain forever so that you can prove that at, you know time x uh, this piece of data existed so it could be a document it could be an mp3 file it could be could be a contract whatever and that allows you to notarize a piece of information at a certain point in time. I, I personally find that this is one of the more, most interesting use cases for Bitcoin and blockchain technology outside of payments. And I wanted to get your ideas about you know, what you think about that and um, you know, where do you think this is going? Um, yeah, first, first of all, I, I have to say that I was not the first to think about this. Uh, after building proof of existence, I found that there are several projects doing the same thing, the same idea. Although proof of existence was certainly the, the first user-friendly experience. Most were tools for developers where you had to download some con command line utility to do this and running a full node. So it was actually the first uh, user accessible way of doing it. Um, but yeah, it was it is considered by, by many like the first real world application of the blockchain that is non-final, non-financial. Um, and I think it's a, it's a really interesting way to think about the blockchain. Like 
there, there are a lot of things we can, there are a lot of properties of Bitcoin that can be used for other systems other than payment. And mainly what proof of existence does is using the, the fact that it's a public ledger uh, where you have decentralized consensus on, on data that is published. Um, and that, that the, the blockchain uh, structure allows to timestamp that data. Uh, so uh, I, fro I, this, this project was launched three years ago or so. And since then, there have been many, many similar projects coming out. Uh, some trying to improve on the technical side, some trying to look, sort of build a nicer product, uh, more targeted to a specific uh, use case. Uh, recently, there, there have been a couple of really interesting developments. Uh, the, the Ethereum project sort of uh, improved uh, both in the technical and the, the business side. They are building a, a system where it's based on an open source uh, project called Chainpoint, where what you do is instead of inserting each document's hash in a single Bitcoin transaction, uh, they, they use a Merkle tree to insert several documents. Uh, so you only insert one hash per each Bitcoin block, which is uh, the, it's a better way to do it because um, with Bitcoin, you only have one timestamp for each block. So it makes no sense to add many documents into the same Bitcoin block. Uh, but they solved it in a really interesting way where they, they can provide you a proof, uh, like a, a proof where you don't need any of the other documents in the same block to know that your document actually is in the in that Bitcoin block. Uh, so the basic idea is you have a, a set of documents each 10 minutes, and you build a Merkle tree from that, and you insert the root of the tree into a Bitcoin block. And then you give each user a Merkle proof, uh, or, or the, the path in the Merkle tree that proves that your document uh, is part of that Merkle tree. So the user can then use his document and the Merkle proof or how they call it, I think it's a blockchain receipt or something like that. Uh, with those two pieces of information, you can prove that your document uh, had a certain timestamp in the using the Bitcoin blockchain. Uh, that's an interesting project. Um, uh, yeah, I'm 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 uh, very interesting to see, interested to see where where this goes. Are you aware of any uh, any instances where uh, a notarization in the blockchain was? Well, I mean, my my question is basically: Is there legal precedence for this to stand up in court or in some sort of a dispute resolution? In, for instance, copyright, because there you know there's other companies like we've talked to. Um, uh, Trent McConaughey of Ascribe, you know, they're doing sort of neurization of digital art on the blockchain. And like you mentioned, there are so many other projects that are doing similar things. I, I, I feel like this might be something that sort of gains somewhat uh, interesting quantities of adoption. Uh, how do you think that, um, how do you think that it would be legally uh, will it become legally binding soon, do you think? Do you think that it will be adopted as something that you know, people would sort of trust as a, a, 
a viable way to notarize documents rather than going through like a notary or, or what other copyright registration, things like that? Yeah, so the, there's no legal precedent yet. The only uh, similar case we have is the Canada State, uh, Canada Senate, that they, when they did a cryptocurrency research, they, they actually uh, used uh, a similar, well, actually the, the same protocol from proof of existence to, to certify their own cryptocurrency report in the blockchain. That's the only like uh, government uh, acknowledgement of this technology working. But it's, we still haven't seen any legal precedent of someone using it in court. I think that the, the way this could develop is um, someone that used proof of existence or a similar blockchain-based timestamping system uh, going to court about something and they they will need to have a an expert witness like I, I don't know how these are called in English but uh, the people that go to court and try to explain to the judge uh, yeah an something. expert witness yeah. okay expert witness and in that case we'll we'll see what uh, what precedent is is set and if if it can actually hold in, hold in court or not um, but I think that as it works technically uh, it it only needs time so that people sort of understand it and see the the value and sort of uh, er, er, these kind of things need time. So it's it's a matter of and and as you said, with all these companies uh, emerging and doing work uh, in this area, I think it's it's better even. Uh, but we we still need to see what happens in, in court. The technology is solid, though, and when we asked some lawyers in Argentina, they said that this could pretty easily hold a, an investigation and it could actually be, could be held correctly against a judge, which actually surprised me because I, I, I thought that it would, there would be no chance that a judge would take something like this into his trials. Yeah, maybe we need a good, uh, we need a big, big uh, case where it's like a hundred million dollars on stake and the proof is on the Bitcoin blockchain <laughs> and then, uh, and then the judges agree on it and then that, that really drives this kind of thing mainstream. It's pretty similar to what, what happened in, uh, in biology, like people were shouting that, can we patent life uh, for 20 years and then there's, there's one guy who actually did patent it and then there was a huge case for 50, 50 million dollars and after that suddenly this uh, this idea of uh, patenting genes went into the mainstream maybe 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 bitcoin will be similar it needs this big lawsuit moment where some big parties are suing each other and the only proof is the bitcoin blockchain what what i find really interesting about the sort of service like proof of existence or some other services out there is that it, it, I find that it opens up the business model. The, the business model is not necessarily reliant on Bitcoin payments. So a service like Proof of Existence or the others that you mentioned, Tyrion, uh, and, and services like this can charge per notarization uh, with a credit card or whatever. So it, it allows people from outside of the Bitcoin and blockchain space to use the blockchain for something actually pretty useful, which is notarizing documents. Yeah, that's true, and I, I think that it, that's a really big uh, strength 
for a Bitcoin business right now or a blockchain-based business because user adoption is, is growing pretty slow. So if you, if you are basing your product on, on the assumption that your users will have Bitcoin, you, really, you, re, you need a really, really compelling use case so that you get users to actually buy Bitcoin to use your application. In, in other case, you need to have an application where Bitcoin is invisible. And you, as you said, you can have credit card or PayPal payments and still uh, use the blockchain in some other way where it's invisible to the user. So before we wrap up, um, we just want to mention briefly, so you guys have a new company. Can you just tell us briefly about the company and what you're trying to achieve? Yeah, we just started a new company. It's called Smart Contract Solutions. Uh, we're, we're doing work with smart contracts. Uh, we're currently in stealth mode, so we cannot talk about the details, but uh, hopefully, hopefully we'll have something we can talk publicly about soon. <laughs> okay, great. Well, um, I want to thank you both for coming on today. It was a really interesting discussion. I, I think that you know this problem—I mean, problem—the issue of content monetization is one that I mean, there's definitely uh, the, you know, Bitcoin definitely tries to solve it in some way. Now, whether or not it will catch, uh, it'll catch on because of user adoption of Bitcoin, or you know, as as we mentioned, the user experience problem that needs to be solved is still remains to be to be seen. But in any case, I think that it does provide a really interesting way for content providers to uh, to monetize their content. Yeah, definitely. We are also very eager to see solutions in that space. Uh, content monetization, Streamium, Faradam, proof of existence, they all, there is something from that into all this. Okay, well, thanks for coming on. Uh, thanks for joining us. And uh, to our listeners, thank you for, for joining us today on another episode of Epicenter Bitcoin. We release new episodes every Monday. Uh, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. It could be also on, the, uh, on iOS or Android. And you can also watch the video version of the show uh, on YouTube at youtube.com slash Epicenter Bitcoin. Of course, you can always send us a tip and the tipping address will be in the show notes. Now, just as a quick note, Regarding the t-shirt bribing uh, operation that we had going on uh, for these last few weeks, we've actually run out of t-shirts. So um, you can still leave us a review on iTunes and uh, you can send us an email at show at epicenterbitcoin.com to let us know that you've uh, sent us a review. Unfortunately, we won't be able to send you the t-shirt right away. We're getting some new ones made uh, as quickly as we can. And as soon as we have some new ones, we'll be shipping those out to, to our listeners. And for those of you who have uh, received a t-shirt, uh, we would be super uh, grateful if you could take a picture of yourself with the t-shirt and send it to us. And we'd like to post that on social media. Uh, so thanks so much. And we look forward to being back next week. Thank you.